You said there's a paper that talks about genomes and linguistics. I talked about that, yeah. yes. I talked about circular logic over there. That is not correct. Okay. I gave us an instance of a circular logic. Yeah, but at least people have tried to, you know, come up with certain conclusions. Right. Or to build a theory right. based on relationships between findings in right. two different right. aspects. Right. Are there no such uh, conclusions tried uh, you know, based on what people do in archaeological aspects? So, so here is the problem. Here is the problem. As an engineer, I know that most of our works is based on models. Right. You start with assumptions, yeah. you build a model, you get data, you try to fit the model, you try to see is the model describing the real world. Yeah. If it describes the real world, then you do what-if analysis or use that to control or do all kinds of other things. This is the model that's not only in engineering. In any field of study, you'll find this abstraction is there. That you have a model, data, fit, validate, use. Yeah. That's the way it is. So the question comes when people are doing studies like this, what are they doing? And I've shown that they're using the wrong model all the time, wrong from the perspective of archaeology saying that this is not the way it is. So we have a host of problems over there. Like I hinted something, when somebody goes to NSF, NSF is the Science Foundation in the United States which give grants. If somebody goes and writes a research proposal saying, I'm going to study uh, theory from out of India, rather than the conventional proto-Indo-European model, I'm going to do this, that will be shut down right there. It's not going to get funded. So professors who write these grants because they need money to run their labs, they're going to write not deviating too much from the existing theories. So existing historians, linguists from Max Muller and from William Jones' time have entrenched a theory and how you should look at the Indian model because this describes the Western people also and they're going to stick with that. That paradigm shift will not change unless something earth-shattering happens. And unfortunately, there is no money from this side to do this kind of a work. I would love it if CCMB that is in Hyderabad, sitting on Indic data, works with a grant from the Culture Ministry and ICHR in India, uh, Culture and Historical Research. Let them fund it and let them see, is there an out-of-India theory? Because this concerns us. Why don't we have the courage to do path-breaking research like this? It is their job. They should do that. The data is in the country. The money is in the country. The intent and the civilizational hunger is in this country to answer these questions. So let's do that. But unfortunately, even in India, the politics is so bigoted that an out-of-India theory will never be accepted. You, you know that right now, uh, the perspective from everywhere is that the dominant religion in this country has been boxed in from all sides, whether it is a judiciary, administration or any other institution is boxing this country in because of everything. I, I don't want to go into too many details, but, but you, it's relevant in all the works that we see in what um, the temple reclamation project is trying to do and uh, several other things. Everything that concerns the mainstream religion of this country is outside of the protection of the constitution. I claim such a terrible thing because that's the evidence that we have seen. Anything, whether it's Shabrimala, the Shani temple, the Hindu schools, the your Right to Education Act, whether it is the temples managed by Hindus, whether it's Madhisnana in, in, in Karnataka, whether it is uh, uh, the so-called Freedom of Superstition Bill, Anti-Superstition Bill in UPA states in Karnataka, Maharashtra, they all have a common element. They'll take a certain group of uh, Indic people and say that you're not a denomination, 
and put you outside the protection of Article 25 to 30 that says you have freedom of worship. And then they'll privilege some so-called secular law like Article 14 saying equality for all and they'll dictate your practices. They'll say that this is not an essential practice, therefore Shabri Mala shall admit this women going over there. This plays itself again and again since 1950. This has been happening to us all the time. We are waking up to the fact that Hindus do not have constitutional protection. This is the tragedy of what has happened today. So the administration does not give a damn. The administration should come, come about the ordinances and bills to correct this constitutional flaw. Courts are only in the position of determining who is following the law and giving a punishment. Administration should come up with bills and these things. They have not done that because the UPA government was in bed with the Marxists for the longest time, caste politics and other such things. They wouldn't do that. I have no clue why the BJP government is not doing anything about it, whether it's ignorance, willful ignorance, or waiting for a landslide uh, announcement just before elections no, to no, get... Uh, Rajya Sabha. Rajya Sabha. Yes. It will be 2020 by the end of the year. Yes. So, bottom line is there are several forces at work that even in India will prevent a research like this. It will prevent a research like this because vested interests are powerfully entrenched, whether it's religious special interests, caste special interests, regional interests, they're all arrayed against the Hindu people over here. And this is the tragedy. Dharmic, I should not say Hindu, Dharmic people. They are arrayed against the Dharmic, the Jew, the Jains, the Buddhists, as well as the Hindus. All are impacted by this. We are outside protections. The administration doesn't care. The media is now hand in glove with uh, vested interest. Everybody downgrades and other such things. So I do not see any chance of the research I'm saying. ICHR joining with CCMB, joining with cultural ministry, joining with others and having a research project saying let's investigate out of India. It will not happen here. It will not happen in the West because NSF will not give grants for any such thing because it concerns the Western identity. The Western identity is rooted in Judeo-Christian framework and that framework requires purity of thought. It cannot have Indic culture stepping outside Afghanistan. That's why I said the paradox. It cannot have that. That separation is there, it is inside India all the time. All the time, every period of time, knowledge needs to come into India. It can't go out of India to maintain purity of their thought systems. So you have problems all over the place based on ideological things. So I have no hope that uh, this research that is said will happen unless some uh, Hindu industrialist billionaires will come and fund something like this. I don't see this happening. How about IHR? Do you face objections? IHAR, we are a very small group. We are a self, almost self-funded. Now slowly we're getting some grants from others, but then point is we are very small. Plus we are all professionals with a day job. We have to work for a living. So we are not in this space entirely. But do you face objections from some designated places? Objections, we, we don't. Uh, what we have found, our experience is that when we invite the other side, they'll avoid confrontation. Okay. See, I have re removed the narrative and the criticism and the objections from a social narrative to a position of you can criticize my data, my methods or my conclusion. There is no space for anything else. And that space is something that I own basically because I am a, a scientist and I can talk the math, I can talk the philosophy, I can talk these things. The person who I'm inviting does not come with this lens. So they avoid a confrontation altogether. So they ignore. So they never attended any of these events that I invite them to. They never come. So 
the strategy is you don't exist. I ignore you, you don't exist. Something related to our identity, but on the academic front, I mean, uh, it's always better to have precise answers. Right. So, so I was particularly interested in my research. Of a few of the things that talk, you talked about, Professor Lal's research, where he did not, or, um, he did not have access to this uh, DNA theory. Oh, we are talking about a very ancient period of time, literally, in the sense that Lal worked in 70s, 80s. Okay. He didn't have that. DNA research became started in 90s only uh, started. Still, he had a theory of continuity of yes, DNA yes, theory. yes, and that he must have, you know. Written on the basis of whatever he saw. Yes, yes. So we are in India today, in an India where even the archaeologist's word cannot be, uh, is not taken. See, no respect is given to an archaeologist's word. He's the one in the field who's uncovering artifacts and writing a theory. The historians refuse that for ideological reasons and don't take it. We are in that kind of a situation. So SR Rao and uh, BB Lal. Just two people. Today there's Ravi Kori Sattar, today there's Shanti Papu and several others, Basan Shinde. Many people are there who are also archaeologists doing things. Mm -hmm. But the point is that when will the narrative change? Who are they waiting for? I don't have even like uh, any question. I just I want to ask something like we have this, this, this much evidence and all. We have just collapsed all our interests and there's nothing like that. We have like Indians are the last most ancient selection and all. What is the main goal of art? What do we want in our Bharat? If we are not supported today, but we are actually giving our efforts to make research more, you know, productive, more tough. So what is the main goal? What do we want that our future generation should study or what do we want from future generation should be should know about our India than the so-called Marxist on India? Right. Right. So, a very big question. So, I don't know if I have the qualifications to answer all that. But what I can tell you is, this is my journey. Hinduism believes we are all on individual journeys. And my journey for truth has led me to uncover all of these things. And I'm sharing it with the world, saying this is what I've uncovered. Now, I would like that you internalize whatever you can from this journey and make it part of your journey. Make it part of your journey of learning. Make it your journey in knowledge systems and so on. To me, if we, as a scientist and as a Hindu, the goal is truth. I cannot deviate from what the truth is. After all, that's what science is doing. What we think is true, tomorrow it might change. But I'm willing to change because our best understanding of evidence is here. We're going evidence-based. So if you ask me what should the Indians learn, I would think that you would need to change the discourse from one of social sciences and humanities, over-reliance on these subjects, to one of balancing it with evidence-based narration. I'm not saying all of humanities is useless. It is of great value to study about social dynamics and things like that. But an over-reliance on gender identities, on uh, oppressor-oppressed identity and uh, postmodernism and all of these kind of things does not help us when it is an opinion-based, completely ignoring the evidence that is out there. So I would like that we should balance the narrative with evidence-based narration and more and more youngsters should know about this. In our country, we are pretty strong in science and technology. A lot of engineers out there. So this is a narrative that can easily be understood. So I'm hoping that most peop more people internalize this and use it in their journeys. Is this possible by using this such research to question the education system of today's India? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it is not as if there are people who are unwilling to go forward. 
people are willing to change if you give this evidence that's been our experience when we talk with a particular state and we talk to them they're willing to change but some of the big things they were not willing to change like Aryan invasion and things like that so out of many recommendations that we made for changes the state government has taken more than 60% of our recommendations but the big things they are afraid because NCRT is sitting out there saying this is the way it is so we know where the narrative must change, but there is no evidence that it will happen anytime soon. Thank you for everything. You've really, over the, and, and you know, over the last year, you've helped me answer a lot of questions and things that didn't fit together. So you're beginning to build in the chronology. If I understand correctly, somewhere between 85,000 years ago and 9,000 years ago, civilization starts in India, essentially, and then travels outward to the rest of the planet. Right, right. Other than Africa. Right. Um, and I don't mean this to be critical because I accept what you put here mm -hmm. better than anything mm -hmm. I know. Question that remains with me is at what point do Indians become different colors mm. and how does that happen? Okay, okay. So uh, you're asking a question that is also answered by genetics. In last year, I had a slide over here that says that allele, allele is a polymorphism. It is a, it is a DNA uh, a genome that might express itself differently. And there is an allele called, I think, SLC24A4. I could be mistaken in my identification of that. But the genetic record says this mutation appeared somewhere near uh, Iran, India, in this area, approximately 30,000 years ago. And that is responsible for uh, expression of melanin. So that is responsible for what skin tone you'll take on as a result of exposure to sunlight, whether you'll become darker or lighter. This allele is mostly in the European and in uh, Northern Indians and in some Southern Indians. It is not a racial or any such thing, but it is uh, more of do you carry that mutation or not? If you do, then uh, this is what is going to happen. Again, there is a book by a professor, I forget her name. It's a lady professor. Uh, she wrote, I think the title of the book is Skin, S-K-I-N, Skin. So she mentions how uh, the reverse process can also happen. For example, the, the Indians who went from northern latitudes up to Sri Lanka actually took on darker tones and so on. So she talks about that also. So there are many things that can happen as a result of uh, exposure to which latitude you are. And if you're carrying that particular allele, that will control your skin tone as a result of exposure to sunlight. That is what is responsible. And this probably started 30,000 years ago. Thank you. And, and one more thing I'd like to point it to you. The white European did not appear 30,000 years ago. If you look at the Cheddar Man, search for Cheddar Man in Britain, and you'll find a specimen that was recovered in Britain around 10,000 years ago, and he looks like somebody right out of Africa as dark as right out of Africa, Negroid features and other such things. And this gentleman is over there in a museum in uh, uh, somewhere in U UK. So the theory says that this replacement of the these people in uh, Europe happened along with this genetic wave, this Yamnaya culture and all these things. Today's genetics is talking about this part of it, saying they were replaced by these people from Central Asia who carried this allele. That's why today's Europe has apparently overrun these uh, original people who had a darker tone, and there are these people. Again, genetic studies are always with inverted codes. You need to be careful how much you can push these things. But I just gave you a couple of examples. Cheddar man, 
and about uh, migratory genetics that talks about the recent popling of the white people in uh, Western Europe. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.